Welcome to the CGB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, the CFL and CFLPA continue to go back and forth about the appeal of Simone Lawrence's suspension. Who's in the right? Who's in the wrong? Does it matter? Kirk Penton of The Athletic will join me to break it down. Also, Murat Atesh of The Athletic is in Vancouver ahead of the NHL draft. And Jamie Bettens, Manitoba Junior Baseball League, our kind of in-house baseball expert, breaks down what is going on in Tampa Bay. Could Tampa Bay actually share their baseball team with Montreal? How will that work? That's on the podcast. The league was not happy with the CFLPA appealing the suspension of Simone Lawrence. They said they're deeply disappointed that the CFLPA has decided to contest the league's attempt to punish and deter a dangerous play. We should embrace the shared responsibility to do all we can to punish and deter any play that crosses the line. It is disappointing that the union has decided to use a legal process at considerable time and expense to defend an offending player instead of standing up for the player hurt on the play. Let's use that time and money instead to work together on new ways to promote and protect all players' safety. The union today responding, the commissioner's public attack on the process and the rights allotted to all CFL players, as mutually agreed to in the collective agreement, is both disappointing and unhelpful. Both players have rights and both are members of the association. Our commitment to player safety must be balanced with our duty to ensure every player receives fair representation when these situations happen. Just like player safety, the commissioner's says the right things in public, but the league under his leadership acts quite differently when it comes to implementing change. On multiple occasions, we propose the CFL adopt a system that would introduce fair and transparent protocols for players facing supplemental discipline. Our proposal was rejected. Clearly, there is a need for improvements to the disciplinary process until the league is willing to work towards a solution. The CFLPA will fight for all its members Our members expect no less. We encourage the commissioner to use this time to get serious about player safety and have productive discussions with us that are focusing on designing a fair and transparent process that will deal with on-field safety. All right. Joined on the line by Kirk Penton, who covers the CFL for The Athletic. Have you ever encountered anything like this between the league and the union as long as you've been covering the CFL? Uh, Not outside of a... Uh, you know, CBA discussion, and they even keep that quiet for the most part. You don't hear a lot of uh, back and forth. Maybe the players get a little vocal at times, but no, you you rarely see this kind of uh, spat. I mean, uh, between these two sides, they're both pumped up pretty good, and uh, it's it's fun to watch. But of course, it's a very serious issue that football needs to figure out. Do you have a side that you're generally leaning towards? Uh, it's tough. I mean, the CFLPA is doing what it's supposed to do. And that's, uh, and that is defend the rights of the players. And, you know, if I were Simone Lawrence and I were paying the union dues, you know, that, that he's paid over the years, how would he feel if they didn't go to bat for him? Like they're basically legally required to do almost. So it's, you know, I'm. I don't really have a side. Really, right. it's just it's 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 the number one issue in football right now. And it, I've I've gone on record as saying that it, it's probably the issue that's going to take football down. In a hundred years, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if football is gone because of this, because of these hits. Now, the CFLPA desperately wants the CFL to not have uh, Randy Ambrosi doing the discipline. You know, they'd like to send it outside of the league. That's kind of what they referenced today. Uh, they reference how the NFL does it. So I think the CFLPA is right when it comes to wanting a more 
transparent and more, I guess, kind of a, you know, a regular, consistent discipline process. I can understand that. Um, I, I think the CFL might have been a bit out of line because, you know, they they are slow. They haven't even admitted that headshots cause CTE yet, even though there's, you know, science that is basically proving that. So, I, I, if I had to pick a side, I would probably take the player's side on this just because, uh, you know, they have the right to represent both guys. And the league hasn't really accepted responsibility for the idea that Lawrence's hit probably should have been an ejection on the field, right? If it garners yeah. a two-game suspension, that surely means that an ejection should have been warranted. Yeah, that's part of it. And, uh, you know, it, it went, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it went from a it, you know, it, it became a 25-yard penalty because of uh, collaboration between the guys in the booth and the officials on the field. So, right. looking at that, yeah, I guess if you're, you know, I who knows? I mean, that that might be something that you can kind of uh, see in hindsight, where Kolaros uh, is out and obviously going to the sixth game, it becomes more, it becomes way worse at that point. But right. um, I don't know. It's it's. Uh, it's a problem, and and you're. I think that players should be kicked out of games. I mean, it's it it's got to get serious, and the players aren't going to realize it until they really start feeling it. And a two game suspension would definitely start to feel it, but they might even have to go more to get this out of the game because uh, it's going to kill the game. It really is. Is there some value though to the idea that it kind of looks weird that they're standing up for Lawrence, this, I guess, is the CFL's argument, but also recognizing the yeah. fact that that player also can cost a quarterback that may not play again ever. Yeah. No, I know. that, that And that's what makes the whole thing weird. I mean, it, it's a weird part of unions. It, it's, it's, it's something that I guess you could see in any workplace, right, where maybe there's a, a worker spat and, mm-hmm. and the union has to, you know, decide uh, who's right and who's wrong or defend both players in an argument or both employees in an argument. That's just kind of a, that's just kind of a weird, uh, you know, a weird part of, of, of life, I guess. I mean, they do have to do, they do have to, they do have to defend both players. That's all there is to it. And and that's just the way it is. And no matter how ugly that hit was, and it was ugly, um, they're always going to defend it. These players they're coming off a CBA, obviously, where they wanted more. They always want more, and they're always going to battle the CFL. So um, there's always going to be a fight. And uh, and when it comes to issues like this, and and this issue in, in football of head hits and concussions, it's it, nobody wins, and, and it just becomes a very ugly scene like it has this week. So your impressions, as we turn to actually the, the you know the action on the field, yeah. your impressions yeah, exactly. of uh, the league after one week. How do you feel about the Winnipeg Blue Bombers after seeing them for one game? Well, they look pretty sharp. Absolutely, you know there were obviously a few warts here and there, but everybody, every team has their warts in the first couple of weeks. And uh, no, they look they look good. Um, BC is obviously needing a few weeks to, to figure things out and, and the bomber defense uh, definitely needs to get a little better. There were some issues there in the secondary, which we've seen throughout the years, but no, I think they were the team that uh, they were one of the only teams I think that did what they were supposed to do during week one. So we'll see if that continues uh, next week.
And we have to remember that, you know, the first few weeks have to be taken with a grain of salt because there are new players being introduced to new systems. Some people are hurt still trying to overcome that. And there is rust, too. So when you have no a preseason where hardly any of the regulars play any meaningful minutes, there will be some rust over the first few weeks. Oh, yeah. And don't forget that player movement in the CFL is uh, being done more than it's ever been done before. And you're kind of seeing some ugly plays and some ugly throws and some mixed up defenses and, you know, blown, blown assignments and things like that. Uh, it's going to take a while for these teams, especially these days to, to really get into a groove. And uh, part of my column this week in the athletic, one of my insiders said, it doesn't matter what happens in the first three weeks. It's uh, it's kind of what he says, we know what we are now, but we also know what we can become. And, uh, and many teams will will show their true identities after uh, after three or four weeks. Well, look at Edmonton last year; they started six and three and missed the playoffs at nine and nine, right? <laughs> That's true too. That's kind of going the other direction. But what surprised you, you the most know. in Week One? Would it have been Calgary losing at home or yeah. Edmonton almost yeah. losing at home? No, it was uh, it was definitely the Ottawa game. I you know Dominique Davis has been around. He was in Winnipeg mm-hmm. all those years that I covered the Bombers and. Uh, I, and he threw four interceptions and beat the Stampeders on the road. I mean, that's uh, that's not something you see every day. So that was definitely the surprise result. And uh, watching them here tonight, you know, Dominic Davis looks pretty darn sharp um, against what's supposed to be a pretty good Saskatchewan defense, like you uh, like you <laughs> mentioned there in your intro. So, um, no, I don't know. It's uh, it's. Like I said, it's it's the first couple of weeks, but but the fact that Calgary's offense wasn't able to win that game is what surprised me the most. They're even though they lost a couple of guys, they're still pretty much together. Their defense is kind of weak as of now, and it's going to take some time to gel if it is going to get better. But there's no reason why Bo Levi Mitchell, who's the best player in the league, did not find a way to beat that uh, Red Blacks team. Well, Kirk, I appreciate your insight tonight, and we'll uh, chat soon. Sounds good, Christian. Have a good night. And the NHL draft is tomorrow night in Vancouver as the NHL world moves its attention from Vegas to the west coast of Canada, and that's where we find Murat Atesh, who covers the Winnipeg Jets for The Athletic and provides great coverage. Murat, thanks for joining me tonight. What's the buzz in Vancouver right now? Well... I've been covering the draft from an athletic team meeting that we've had. And one of the coolest things about our experience here is to get so many of our writers under the same roof. And that's sort of where I am right now on a rooftop in Vancouver, having the conversations with how we're going to approach everything. We've got a huge team here. um, And it's going to be really interesting specifically to see what the Jets do and then what we're able to put together as a sort of a team package. Right, so looking at the Jets, now they're, they are back into the first round with that 20th overall pick they got for Jacob Truba. Uh, it's been a few days since that trade happened, but just your thoughts on it. I, I, I'm reading your t- accounts of it, you feel underwhelmed by the return. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. Uh, no one was ever under the illusion ever that you were going to get a Jacob Truba-esque player in return for that deal. That, that was never the goal, and the fact that there's no Jacob Truba coming back to Winnipeg in that situation is not the reason for being underwhelmed. Uh, I think it's when you get into comparing it to recent rental situations, whether it's Jake Muzzin, whether it's the Ryan McDonough deal, whether it's what Winnipeg paid to have 26 games worth of Kevin Hayes or Paul Stastny last year. In terms of the rental market, I think he's a superior player to what Winnipeg got back for him. 
Though we knew all along that a first-round pick was something that the Jets would put a premium on. Neil Pionk projects, depending on how, to what degree you believe that New York's uh, shoddy defense overall held him back. And I'm a little bit skeptical there, but uh, he's what Winnipeg has moving forward. And, and certainly they'll, they'll look to work with him as best as they can. And the Jets also saw Kevin Hayes go and sign a 7 mil for seven-season contract with the Flyers. Some people, for some reason, were a little upset that they traded his rights for a fifth-round pick, but it's obviously a no-brainer now. The Jets were never going to be able to afford that kind of contract. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was a savvy move on Kevin Chevaldeoff's part. I mean, at that point, the the sunk cost was made. The the deal at the deadline was what it was, and it was a matter of getting value back for a player that was clearly not going to end up in Winnipeg. Winnipeg needs as many drafts picks as it, as it can more bullets the better it is a draft and development team despite going all in at the last few trade deadlines so to get a fifth uh, you know a meaningful not particularly high pick in exchange for a guy that wasn't going to sign here i think that's a that's a wise move and it's going to help out tomorrow so or on saturday pardon me so we've heard a lot of uh buzz heading into draft a lot of stuff out of toronto marner what he what's he going to do will there be an offer sheet We've also heard the name Nikolai Ehlers tossed around a little bit as we gear up for the draft tomorrow night. Is there any chance that Ehlers could be moved before the draft? I think there's a chance. It's not something I'm leaning on as a probability. I would say below 50%. I don't think as much as we talk about him as possible, a a trade piece coming out of Winnipeg, and I see the argument, and I, I make the argument sometimes if you're the Winnipeg Jets and you look at your forwards and you look at your defense, you're looking for balance, and he's a valuable, valuable trade chip. I think that Kevin Shelledayoff and the Jets recognize that there's value there, and they may be looking to, to trim around the cap with, with other players like Matthew Perot, who I'm a very big advocate of. I think Winnipeg needs possession-driving players like that to complement its skill and its offensive talent. But I think there are other moves that Winnipeg can make to address cap space if that's what they want. If it's defense, then they're going to look at perhaps exploring signings of Ben Sherratt. I think Tyler Myers is going to be a little bit out of the price range. So a Nick Ehlers trade, while it's something to talk about because he is a valuable asset and could address defense or possibly even a center, shouldn't be front burner for the Winnipeg Jets and more of a contingency plan if they get desperate. And to be honest, I think that's a difficult trade to win in and of itself. I just don't think Winnipeg's panicking to, to rush that one either. In reading your coverage after the season ended, uh, a buyout of Dmitry Kulikov is something you speculated would happen. If that does happen, when will it be? Because I know some other players have been bought out. Yeah, um, the buyout season has begun and that Dmitry Kulikov has yet to be bought out might suggest that it's not going to happen. I think with the Winnipeg's balance issues right now, they have excellent forwards. Their goaltending is set. We know what it's going to be. When you look at the depth chart, as it stands today, this is a cap team. This is not a cap. Uh, there, there does not absolutely have to be a trade out for cap purposes. So you could play what you have uh, today and, and lean forward. I think it's if Winnipeg looks to go shopping and address the fact that its defense isn't particularly strong, especially on the left side right now. But in the top four in general, beyond Morrissey and Bufflin, there isn't much there. I think it's a matter of looking at all of the different options for addressing that weakness. And if at the end of solving, uh, solving a lack of depth on defense, there are cap issues, then Kulikov perhaps becomes a casualty of that. So again, it's not a desperation situation. I still think it's a, it's a possibility in Winnipeg and, and could save a valuable dollars. I think 2.8 million that you'd save this year is Ben Sherratt money right there, or most of it, and uh, could be valuable for the Jets. And it's a matter of sort of seeing Kevin Shevelday-off's balls-in-the-air comment. I think he genuinely does have a few different contingency plans here. 
Now, the 20th overall pick tomorrow, there's still going to be some pretty good talent at 20 that they can choose from. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the interesting thing about this draft. We had a, a, a roundtable at The Athletic where scouts from across the league were polled and sort of what is the quality of this draft? What are its strengths and weaknesses? And, and to a scout, uh, the, the thought is that there's quality at this draft right up until about 25 to 28. It was a very specific range where after the top-end talent of Hughes and Kako, uh, there's a couple of players that, that round out a top 10. And then there's a next tier that extends all the way to 25-28. Winnipeg's well within a safe range of that. There are going to be talented forwards available for sure. There are a few less defensemen available, but one thing that uh, as players go ahead of them, I, when Dayoff believes that he's going to get a player that other people um, didn't necessarily rank as highly but will be of quality, I, I believe that that's absolutely true. The amount of good players right through 20, 25, 28, 30, depending on what the, which scout you talk to, means that Winnipeg should absolutely get a, a valuable player at that spot. And if the Jets' draft history is any indication, I think it's going to be a forward. Finally, how exciting is this next two weeks going to be for you? Well, it's an absolute whirlwind. And it is every offseason we ever talk about is a difficult offseason. Each one comes with its strengths and weaknesses and challenges for management and the different plans that the Jets might have. But sincerely, I can't think of one even in the future with Line A and Connor and the Truba situation that just happened and, and what's happening going forward, this is the one for Winnipeg, and it's going to set an awful lot of what the quality is like in the years going forward, as well as what that window is going to look like for what should be a good team going forward. Well, Murad, I appreciate your time tonight. Have fun covering the draft in Vancouver. Thank you so much. So, the news of Tampa Bay possibly sharing their baseball team with Montreal took over the internet today and joined now by our resident baseball expert, Jamie Bettens, president of the Manitoba junior baseball league from Denver's airport before he flies back to the peg. Your initial thoughts on uh, today's news, Jamie. Uh, Great for Canadian baseball and great for the fans of Montreal to try and maybe get some semblance of a team back. I I think Tampa Bay is, is a dying market. Um, The owner, Mark Tompkin is, is, leveraging this i think to try and push one last time for the new stadium and if they can't then uh you know at least he's getting shared revenues with because i'm sure he'll profit from the montreal opportunity but uh i think it's a it's a monumental step forward for baseball in canada from a tampa bay point of view you mentioned the leverage for a new stadium they're not far away from miami and they saw what a a disaster that whole deal was financially for the local community no one's going to the games in miami so you'd think that tampa bay probably is going to be bold and not give in to this ownership seeing what happened with the Miami stadium. Yeah, it seems like the appetite for the, I guess, the the governors and the, the government in Florida is to put money into spring training facilities. And much like the Blue Jays just announced uh, this year with the millions of dollars going into refurbishing Dunedin. But when it comes to the major league product, I, I think it just seems like it's a tough obstacle to overcome. Uh, you know, hockey, you know, with, aside from, you know, Tampa being a winner and, and drawing fans in that way, you know, the Florida Panthers struggle. There's there's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFL um, have a, a unique product where it's once a week, so that has a better chance or a fighting chance, but they're never too far from attendance woes either. It just seems like that's a tough state to have professional sports in at times. Yeah, you can talk about Jacksonville, the Miami Dolphins. You know, attendance isn't great, and really just the heat when they were – Winning those titles with LeBron James, they were up there, but that's a unique situation too. 
So does my first look at this, I, I feel like the inevitable conclusion is they're going to move the team to Montreal, whether it's 10 years from now, 15 years from now. But if they're doing half and half, it seems like they're on their way to seeing if that is a permanent solution. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I think it's bridging the gap at the moment. Uh, and for two reasons. One, you know, as I, we had alluded to earlier with the stadium problems in Tampa, but there's also no new stadium aside from the land development that kind of snuck into, under the wire maybe a few weeks back with uh, the Montreal area kind of granted an opportunity to build a new stadium. So it kind of buys time for the Montreal group to get things going and get the new stadium built. It still keeps the fans of Tampa Bay happy and gives them an opportunity to put in a new stadium. But uh, I, I do think it's inevitable at this point. I don't, I don't think Major League Baseball goes on record and you know a grant permission like this without uh, thinking that uh, the likely scenario is that is it'll be in Montreal for years to come. So it is a chicken and the egg thing, right? You don't want to build a stadium without knowing that a, a baseball team is going to come to Montreal. I think that's exactly what we're looking at right now. Um, I think the the ownership has kind of gone through the uh, the hurdles, overcome the obstacles, and proven themselves as an opportunity to to be viable again. And uh, now they're kind of giving them that chance to say, okay, we're going to kind of ease this, uh, ease everybody into this and and make it a a palatable situation for the team that will be leaving in Tampa Bay. Could we relate this, I guess, in many ways to the Winnipeg Jets getting a hockey team back? I know that it's not like the Thrashers played half and half here, but a market that loses their team. They were financially struggling when they lost the team, but it's clearly a market that has an appetite for the product still. Here we are. 15 years later. I wouldn't be surprised if Montreal followed the blueprint of the Chipman family. Um, you know, just keep your head down, uh, keep working hard and keep doing things right. You know, keep lining yourself up for the opportunity when it presents itself. You never really saw, you know, uh, a wealth of, of, of things happening in the media where we were saying we're begging for a team. They just kept doing things well, kept running the moose very well, kept a successful franchise going. And then when it came time, um, you know, they, they appeared to be ready, and they were. How happy should Montreal fans be right now today? I think very, for a couple of reasons. The obvious being that the team has a very high likelihood of coming back. But two, look at the record of the Tampa Rays right now and the team that you're inheriting. You're inheriting a team from a, from a, a, a playing standpoint that's at the absolute tip of the iceberg about to hit their peak stride of their development cycle so they are the houston astros maybe two years before they became the houston astros that they are right now so the fact that you may land that team within this competitive window um will could even lead to a potential championship within the first four or five years of the franchise it's a little bit far-fetched to think but it really isn't that far from the realm of possibility at this point all right, so the plan itself, playing maybe your first half in Tampa Bay, second half in Montreal. I know that the Expos at the very end were playing something like a couple dozen games in Puerto Rico before they moved. How weird would that be for the players to kind of go half and half? I think it's an adjustment for sure. Um, when you get guys who are tenured to, you know, are creatures of habit and don't like to move around too much, I think it could be tough. But at the same time, I'm not so sure how much the players really love being in Tampa Bay anyways. Uh, so the opportunity to have something different and uh, plant some new roots, uh, it might be tougher on the families and the players, but in the end, uh, I think the the right result will happen. So you're uh, in Colorado right now. Last night I talked about 
a little league base brawl that happened, not with the players, but the parents, seven-year-old baseball players, the 13-year-old up makes a, a bad call. It's just, it's just stupidity, right, from the parents? It, it's absurdity. It, it really is. It, it's sad. I, I coach youth sports. Um, I coach 10-year-old softball, and it, I, I, I just appreciate what any umpire at any level does and the fact that something that they may or may not have been influenced on that could affect parents to the, to the point of a brawl. And this was males, females, everything. The local news coverage did not let this go for the last 24 hours, so I got to see extended coverage and see the video numerous times, and it was just sickening. Um, as somebody who is uh, so involved in youth sports myself, it, just, it was really tough. I didn't see any coaches and I didn't see any kids around, which means hopefully that they were ushered off you know, to a different area but I can't see how they didn't see and, and aren't going to be affected by the fallout. It, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, you see it happen in numerous sports, hockey and the others, but uh, a bit of a black eye, I'm sure, for everybody involved. And we have to say it's the exception, not the rule, but in your experience with youth sports, have you seen, you know, rowdy parents get out of hand before? Absolutely. Um, you know, anytime that there's a score clock or a scoreboard or a scorebook involved, parents become different animals um you know I, I always kind of joke around and i and i joke to parents and say you know how come nobody ever cheers this loud at practice they're always kind of sitting off to the side or you know kibitzing and what have you they but the minute there's a referee or a score clock involved uh i wouldn't say the animals come out but they, they kind of do and and uh people like myself who coach we don't coach you know for those reasons but at the same time there's a lot of coaches that you know, sometimes leave the volunteer positions for those reasons. So that's why, you know, I, I hope as parents and, and uh, even as coaches, we can all be a little bit better. Why do you think people change like that when there's a score clock? You know what? I, it's just a competitive nature. Uh, I think we see a lot of, you know, parents that still like to, you know, live live the dream maybe through the kids' eyes and, uh, you know, get a little bit too wrapped up in it. And uh, all it takes is, you know, one bad apple on each team. And for some reason, they seem to be able to find each other. And one one shot comes over the bow and another one comes back. And before you know it, there's an engagement there that, you know, uh, they probably didn't even see coming when they came to the game. But it just kind of seems to come to the surface. It, it's, it's frustrating. It's disappointing. There's great programs like Respect in Sport uh, that, you know, Sport Manitoba and all the sport governing bodies offer for parents to be more educated on it, but uh, I don't think it's, uh, it just unfortunately isn't enough. It still seems to happen. Well, Jamie, I appreciate you taking some time to uh, talk to me tonight and have a safe trip back home. Thank you. Take care. Tune in to the CGOB Sports Show weeknights from 7 to 9 with me, Christian O'Mell, or you can download the podcast on iTunes. It's actually on iTunes now. Wow. If you got an Android, then I think you're out of luck. But Apple products, you're good. So listen to the podcast. Please subscribe. You can rate it. What's the worst that could happen?